You're listening to the Lovely Preschool Teachers Podcast, the podcast for quick, actionable ideas and tips to help you up your confidence and joy in educating little learners. I'm your host, Ashley Rives. Let's get to the show. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Lovely Preschool Teachers Podcast. You are listening to episode 36, How to Effectively Group Your Preschoolers for Small Group. Today's episode is the second episode in the small group series. So if you missed the first episode in this series, you can go back to episode 35, where we talk about the five big benefits of having preschool small group. One of the biggest obstacles when planning for preschool small group can be just figuring out your groups. So once you start planning, questions kind of start festering up like, what is my criteria for breaking students into groups? And how many students should go in each group? And how long does a student stay in each group? And how should I refer to my group? There are so many details you don't think about. You just think, okay, I'll grab a group of students and go. But then once you really dig in, all these questions start coming up. So answers to these questions are exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So let's go ahead and start with creating groups. If the purpose for small group is to help children gain skills they are missing, then we have to do one thing first, and that is figure out what is missing through assessments or observations. Because we have to first know what they know so that we know how to group them. That's a lot of no's, isn't it? Um, So start with assessments first. I actually recently redid all of my assessments, um, the whole shebang, because I needed them to be more simplified and more targeted and just more clear. So now my assessment process is a little bit easier than what it was in the past. And so before we start small group, we do assessments. So I do the set of assessments and then I can become more focused on what students need. And I will go ahead and drop a link in the show notes to the assessments that I'm referring to in case that you're wanting to check them out. But we're going to start with cross-referencing assessments. Can you make a group of at least two students that need help with the same skill set? If so, you've got a group. And while assessments are the core of how I figure out who to put in which group, I also can use observation. So don't discount the idea of using what you see going on to help children. This especially works well when maybe you're seeing some social issues. Maybe you're seeing some self-help issues. Maybe you are seeing some attention to task issues. Those things also can be a small group. Maybe it's not as formal as sitting down and playing a game. Maybe it's a small group of children that you're helping learn how to wipe their nose or teach them how to wipe their nose. Or maybe it's a small group of children that you are doing specific targeted social emotional skills for. Maybe it's a group of children that you are just doing small tasks to help build their attention to task. So don't forget that your observations and thinking a little bit outside of the academic skills box 
also can be hugely beneficial to your students and using small group in that way as well. Now let's move into how many in a group. So since we're talking about small groups, my recommendation would be no more than five students, three to five being ideal. Having more than five students that all need help with the same skill may require you to actually create two groups of students that both focus on that one skill. That way you're making sure that you are not having too many friends in the group and you can really focus on them. Or maybe you have one student that needs help on a specific skill. You can do a very small group, aka one-on-one, with that child. That will work too. And for me, I never put the same child in multiple groups. The reason because I want to focus on one skill at a time and see the growth in that skill. Also, I don't want to be pulling them out of free play centers too often. I don't want it to become a thing where they are feeling like they're missing out on what really drives them through play. I want them to still want to come over to the table with me and play a game. So overusing that and putting them in a lot of groups will definitely damage that, hey, I want to come see what she's got going on over there and will become more of a chore for them. And now let's take a moment to talk about how long a student should stay in a group. Raise your hand if you remember reading groups when you were a child. I was born in the early 80s and the ones in my class had names like Bluebirds, Yellow Jackets, and other random, at least to me, names. And once someone was placed in the Bluebird group, aka the struggling readers, (laughs) we all knew it, let's be real, they never seemed to get out. They were always a Bluebird and... Even though they called them bluebirds, the teachers did, um, everyone knew what was going on. Everyone knew that's the struggling reading group. How lame is it that no child ever graduated out of these groups? And how equally lame is it that we can remember how those group names made us feel? So how long should a student stay in a group? I feel like it's pretty simple. As long as they need to and no longer. Do I make a big to-do about them graduating out of a group? No, I don't even talk about it. Not, you know, not because the mastery of a skill shouldn't be celebrated, it should, but because I don't want small groups to take on any kind of stigma. And by announcing that one child has moved out or up doesn't really do anything for the group morale. It makes them all think, well, when do I get to move out or up? How come they get to? Chances are that a child is graduating from the group just means they're soon going to be moving to another group to work on a different skill. So to really help me learn how a child is ready maybe to move on or move out of a group is really just by observing during small group. I don't necessarily take the time to reassess them formally. I make more observations. So while they're playing the game with me, I have a notepad right there and I have the sections like roped off for each student. And so whoever, you know, whichever student that is, I'm just writing notes about them. What am I seeing that they're able to do? And it's very shorthand. And sometimes I have to go back and really like, what was I saying? Um, But that's how I figured out. Because if you are playing this numeral game 
and you know all the numerals, and I have kind of observed you and wrote all that down, then there's really no need for you to be there still. And so I can just move you to a different group or take you out of a group for a while too, because depending on how many students you have in your class, you may not be able to have every single child in a group at once. All right, so how should you refer to your groups? Um, probably by bluebirds and yellow jackets, of course. <laughs> Only kidding. Totally kidding. I don't name my groups. Um, on paper, I may, you know, have them as the group that's working on numeral recognition, but I don't yell out, numeral recognition group, come on over. I just call their names. It's simple, it's easy, and they don't need a label. They are just coming together, and it may not even be the same group of students next week if some of our students are moving groups and it's a very fluid thing. So don't get caught up on what you know your group is called. Get more caught up on observing who needs to be in it, what activities you can do to keep it engaging. In my opinion, skip the names. Just call out students by name, have them come over because it's going to look different every couple of weeks, right? Okay, and finally, let's talk about what most teachers are wondering the most when we talk about small group and they've not done it before. What the heck are the other students doing while you're pulling this group? I know that it can feel fantasy-like. Oh, I'll just pull these children and it will be fantastic and everyone else will do what they're supposed to. Uh, Not reality. When I taught first grade, it wasn't reality, and it's certainly not reality in preschool because they're younger, right? It's really important. This is really important for me to share with you because I don't feel like you should just run out and jump into small groups. There is so much foundation to lay before you can start having small groups. And I actually have a blog post that I will link in the show notes that is about, is it time to start small group? And it really kind of lays out in there some signals to you that your students might be ready because it's different with every class every year. So think about what do we need to do first? Well, we need to learn procedures and rules of our classroom. So that is what our first, you know, several weeks to a month is all about. Then we need to learn about how to use the materials in our centers. What do we do with them? How do we put them back? What do we do with the tray activity? How do we clean up our mess before we move on to somewhere else? Now, with them being preschoolers, even with learning all of these things, there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be interruptions there's going to be bickering, there's going to be fighting, all of those things are going to happen. So for me personally, I like to just know that's coming. And there's no reason to get upset when it does happen. I used to kind of get frustrated. But really, what I'm seeing when they're doing this is just a learning opportunity for them. Okay, so they're bickering at the carpet, and they can't seem to figure that out. Can I pause my small group Can I go work with those students and teach them a lifelong social emotional skill, then go back to my small group? So just reframing how you look at it and know that interruptions are going to happen. Expect them. 
wait for them. And then when they don't, rejoice, right? (laughs) Be happy. So that is kind of how I look at it because my children are free choice centers. I am not requiring them to go to a certain center. So I feel like this keeps them more engaged because once they are kind of over an activity, they can move themselves somewhere else. But again, it's a lot of teaching my expectations, my procedures in the classroom and how to use the centers themselves. And again, this isn't just a one-stop thing. We may do it deeply at the beginning of the year, but we have to retouch on it. That's just life. After a long break or just um, the crazies of the holidays or the crazies of spring, we have to retouch on it. It is what it is. But that is what the other students are doing while I'm pulling small group. I will also note on another issue that often comes up for me in small group, and that is when I pull a group of students, I sometimes have other students that come to the table too. Well, I want to do it. I want to turn. And it's usually the same group of students that always want to turn and always want to be involved in what's going on. So sometimes if I have the time, I can allow them to have a different small group and do the exact same activity. Or I can remind them that their small group time is coming up. You're going to get to do an activity too. So that is just one little hiccup, but you are going to, it's really hard to shut down a kiddo who's like, I want to come do what you're doing. That looks exciting. And I think it looks engaging. Like they're basically asking you to come join your group and you don't want to shut that down, but you also have to be mindful that we don't want too many in a group because then it just becomes whole group again. So how can we just make sure that those students that always want to be involved have a way to be involved in a way that is appropriate and still respects the time that the other students need in small group? So just a little side note there of something that might pop up or maybe has popped up and kind of how, you know, I approach that. Oh, Nellie. Okay. That was a lot of information. So let's just recap. Let it's just recap. So try not to make grouping children in your small group too scientific. Just do your best to group based on the information that you have. And if a student comes to small group and it becomes clear they don't need to be there, just release them from that group and, you know, have them do something different. And understand that groups will ebb and flow. And also understand that not all days go as planned. We know this as preschool teachers, so also give yourself that grace in small group. Sometimes we have an upset student, right? And they need our attention. And so your ability to have small group may change. Sometimes children are so engaged in play that to be quite honest, I hate to interrupt them. And that's okay too. Give yourself and your students grace when pulling groups because we are teaching little preschoolers after all. Have you told your teacher bestie about the Lovely Preschool Teachers podcast yet? I would absolutely love for you to share. If you are enjoying this podcast, it means the world to me to be able to help you help your students. And I would always love to reach new teachers. So share it out. Also, next week, we are continuing in the small group mini series. And we are going to be talking about activities that you can do in your small group. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So please join me next week. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and keep being lovely. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. This helps me spread the word and help more preschool teachers just like you. Keep being lovely.